a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Ironled Cartel. For all your fitness and streetwear apparel and health supplements. Hosted by Australian veterans, Matt and Shane, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the zero-limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. All right, Matt, on today's podcast, we have a bloke called uh, John Stryker Meyer. He's, uh, he was in the Green Beret in the US Army uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, from my knowledge, um, he joined, I think, in his early 20s. He did some pretty pretty wild shit. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, before uh, we get into the interview, you know, I did a bit of listening in the last couple of days with a couple of, you know, previous podcasts he was on. Yeah. And he's got some stories that will just like, it's, yeah. I listen to the same ones you did uh, and or probably a little bit different ones and they are fucking full on. Hopefully he can, he can tell us a little, little bit about them, but they're all in his books. Um, but the shit he was saying, and it was like, it's a wonder he hasn't, hasn't been take, taken down off the air. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I guess because it, it was such a long time ago, and obviously this is going to be our first uh, Vietnam veteran as well, and a, a Green Beret of all things, which yeah. you know was the pinnacle at that stage, hundred um, percent for Special Forces. Um, because you know, I, I know that Special Forces was relatively new for them as well, because you know it was established early nineteen fifties, and then you know straight into a yeah. know, into a war. So Same. anyway, let's yeah. uh, let's get into it. Happy days. Matt, on uh, today's Zero Limits podcast, we have a Vietnam vet from the USLV, and I've been chatting with him the last few weeks. He's been in the pipeline for quite some time, and here he is. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, sir. It's good to be here, and it's a real honor to be with two gentlemen, fellow veterans that are down under while I'm over here in Tennessee, USA. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, we appreciate it, mate. And uh, again, as Shane said before, you're our first uh, Vietnam veteran. For us, it's quite a big deal because, you know, the Vietnam War was one of those wars that was um, a confusing war, an unknown enemy. At, well, the unknown enemy and, and, the, and the hands of the soldier and the Marines and any of the sailors that are fighting in it, their hands are tied by politics. Yeah. And bullshit. I yeah. mean, there's more lawyers in Afghanistan today than soldiers. Yeah, mate. I am. Um, and all that kind of bullshit you all had to put up with. I, man, that would drive me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't good, mate. I remember our first, you know, few weeks in, we, you know, we had a couple of, obviously, 
there was a few dogs out there, you know, as in uh, four-legged dogs, and we shot a couple because we had to. And, uh, yeah. mate, the loyals had come in and give us a, a you know, investigate it. I was like, calm down. Like, what? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Anyway, that's that, that's that's that bad, that, was it? Yeah, it's a, that that's another podcast. Uh, uh, but was it, he like worried about whether you cook the dogs the right way? <laughs> if you kill them or what? Did oh, you get them a proper oh, burial? No, I think the, I think the lawyers were just bored. So oh, yeah, my in the morning. God. Yeah. yeah, that's typical chicken shit ambulance chase. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Hey, John, this is your first Australian podcast. Uh, I believe so. Yes. There may have been one other one, but I've done a few over the last. 18 months, yeah, they become a little bit blurred. But this is the first one I remember right now. So. <laughs> All right, we'll, bloody, we'll go with that then. That's a good start. All right, mate. Well, <laughs> let's just start off from the start as in, uh, you know, timeline of your life. So where did you, uh, you know, what year and where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, which is on the east coast of uh, the United States. Yep. And uh, after going to school, went to college for a couple of years. It took me two years to flunk out of college. And so I finally flunked out in 1966. Yep. And uh, basically, my there was a draft at that time. Yeah. So if you didn't have a, a student deferment and you're 18 to 26, you were getting drafted. My dad sent me a letter. I was working in Yosemite National Park, which is one of our most beautiful national parks. And um, uh, a week or so after I got the letter, I went to the bookstore and there was a book, The Green Berets. Well, by that time, the song had been out. And so I read the book and I go, that's it. If um, if I can get in the Green Berets, I want to go with these guys because they train more. Because at that time, guys were getting drafted to get eight weeks of basic training, eight weeks of advanced infantry training, one month leave, and they're in Vietnam. Yeah, right. Well, so I'm a city slicker. I know I needed more training than that. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I went ahead, applied, got in, got trained up. And then um, in April of 68, uh, myself and a bunch of our fellow Commo Green Berets went to Vietnam. Yeah, right. And obviously at that stage, you know, mid sixties, you know, SF Special Forces is only it's it's still fresh. You know, nineteen early nineteen fifties is when, you know, it was created. So how was it? Yeah, it was created in nineteen fifty two. Yep. And they had a you know, detachment in Germany. That's where the first detachment was because the Cold War was at its extreme at that point. Yep. And so um that's where the first group was formed, the tenth special forces group. And then over time, we had the 7th. And then when Vietnam kicked off, our government had been aiding the French. And when the French got kicked out, we stayed to support South Vietnam. And of course, the North Vietnamese pretended that they were neutral and just being, they just want a fair election. They didn't want anything that. They were just ready to take it over by force. Mm. And at first, they tried to do it by guerrillas and um, undercover, that kind of stuff, dissent. And then the Green Berets went over to work with local indigenous people. And then uh, our government had that a truce, or not a truce, but a uh, some kind of a memorandum of understanding that we'd have no combat troops in Laos or Cambodia. So the Americans pulled them out, and the communists said, "Oh yeah, we'll pull them out." Well, this is 1962, when JFK was still president. Yeah. And the communists, they were, you know, they're just lying. They're lying dogs. By that time, they've been working the Ho Chi Minh Trail for five years. Yeah, right. Expanding it, bringing their troops. There's agents, supplies, weapons south, and they would come down through Laos and Cambodia with trails that would go off into South Vietnam. And that was going on for several years before 1962. So they said, oh, yeah, we're neutral. We respect the neutrality of Laos. They were lying. So by the time I get there in 68, the Green Berets had been there in traditional A camps, there with the Delta Project, which was like for a special 
and the mic force, which would go out and help ACAF that were under stress, or they would come back and help any team that was uh, getting overrun. Yeah, in right. Country. Yeah, well. And uh, so that was most of, of that kind of work. So it was it wasn't new. It was something that was ongoing, and uh, it was just really a bad time. And by 1968, we had at least 25 to 35,000 NBA troops in in Laos alone. Yeah. Fuck. They were keeping the trail open, bringing supplies south, and hunting us. And they were also putting together uh, teams, SOG hunter-killer teams, that were designed to hunt and kill our, 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 our Americans on a recon team. Yep, gotcha. So um, just before we get into the Vietnam side of things, can we just get back to your training and uh, tell us how it was, how, how did you find your training to become a Grand Beret? Well, at, um, we went through basic for eight weeks, advanced infantry training, did all the tests for special forces. Then we had to become airborne, went to Fort Benning, Georgia, three weeks of jump school, then from there to Fort Bragg. And there's three phases of training. The first phase is phase one, where it's general uh, land navigation, survival, some hand-to-hand combat, um, things like that. And just to see how, what kind of physical shape you're in. You had to do a lot of land navigation, night stuff. Um, and then phase two was your MOS training. And then at the end of your MOS training, I got recycled. Myself and a few other guys, we were training up for comma, which was Morse code. Yep. So we got recycled. And so we were there a little bit longer. So we finally graduated in December. Then they sent myself and about 13, 14 other combo guys to Fort Gordon for TDY, temporary duty, for RTT, radio teletype training, because you need to have a top secret clearance. Then we went to Vietnam, and I never used any of that. Never used <laughs> wow. RTT or Morse code. We always had FM. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's a waste of time, though, I and suppose. So we landed in Vietnam and uh, at the end of April 68. Yeah, so that, you know what? A couple of months of training and you're straight in, straight in. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we had really it was over a year of training. Yeah, you count the first day of basic training until we got done with the RTT TDY training. Yep. So there were 15 months of training. Yep. And uh, so when we get to Vietnam, we had in-country training with special forces. It was two or three weeks. I forget now. At the end of that. A little guy comes out and says, we're looking for volunteers. So Johnny McIntyre, my buddy, goes, for what, Sarge? He said, can't say. Either you're in or you're out. And that was our introduction to, to Saad. Yeah, he studies right. an observations group. And it was a secret war that was, had been going on. It started in, in, uh, in 1964, and it ran for eight years all the way through 1972. Yeah, and right. by 1968, we didn't know it at the time, but it was the deadliest year of Saad. We have more team. Like when I arrived, so we go through our briefing. I arrive at FOB one Fubai, which is I Corps. We had four corps: I Corps, which was on the DMZ. You go south, there's two corps, three corps, and then four corps, which is the Mekong Delta area. So all my time was in I Corps. We were stationed there first FOB one, then at CCN, and we ran our missions west across the fence into Laos or North Vietnam for down piles or into the DMZ to see what the enemy trafficking was. We ran a few missions in Cambodia. Yeah, right. What age were you? Uh, when I got to Vietnam, I was 22. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's pretty young. Hey, John, back onto the training. Yeah, I was in college. You know, it took me two years to flunk out of college. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had all that high-pollutant high training there. <laughs> How fast was the uh, training for a normal foot soldier as opposed to you guys? Was it obviously – Well, they, like I said, it was just basic training, advanced infantry, welcome to Vietnam. Bang. Yeah. Straight in. Oh, yeah. 
And, and how many uh, how many soldiers went over in the in the first sort of um, few years? Say again. How many U.S. soldiers went over in the first few years? Well, when I got there in '68, we had the maximum of deployment of Americans, which was 543,000 Americans that were there. And wow. during the total war, we had 3.2 million Americans that served in Vietnam. That included. 500,000 sailors that were anchored offshore who would come in for the weekends and stuff. Wow. And uh, out of that, you had 20,000 Green Berets that would be at the traditional aid camps. And then out of that 20,000, you had about 2,000 that were assigned as SOG. And from that number, you had anywhere from six to 800, depending on who you talk to, that actually ran missions across the fence with a recon team or a hatchet. Yeah, that's that's a lot of a lot of people. I think still to this day, our defence force isn't even over sixty something like that. I think our navy's like nine thousand, army's like eight thousand. You get closer to your mic, Shane. I have oh. a hard time here. Sorry, mate. <laughs> I said the um. Our, now speak up like the army guys. Come on. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, mate. <laughs> I said our, our <laughs> navy itself is only like ten thousand. Our, our army's probably like forty eight thousand. So our defence force, even in this current day, is still like small as compared to any other country that is like the same size yeah um what was your first um mission john when you're over there well we had some in-country training and we had night ambushes and then we did a a practice mission with another team we were east of the ashall valley which is one of our major targets where the valley was where the ho chi minh trail came in at the north and the south and that was a major supply route and in 1965 and 66 we had three green beret camps that were in that valley all wiped out by the NDA, wow. North Vietnamese Army. And so by 68, we went in on a, with another team. Just to, He was a new one zero. Our team was a new one zero. And we just had a five-day mission. Um, that other team ambushed the Pathet Lao ambush. So the Pathet Lao were the, uh, the Viet Cong for the Laotian. So the NBA would come in and train them up, but they weren't that good. That's why our guys ambushed. Yeah, okay, ambushed right. their ambush. And then after that, we did the first two missions with minimal, there's no gunfire involved. It was, we sent in uh, Air Force sensors and they were uh, three units. They had a central pod that had coaxial cables that went out. And we, we had to go in, stall them next to a trail, bury them, bury the cable, and then leave them. And sure. so anything coming down the trail, the Air Force could pick it up, whether it was people, tanks, trucks, ox carts, elephants. Wow. They could delineate the difference. Yeah, right. We did that twice, in August and one in September up by Quezon. And then um, after that, we had a mission in October where uh, we made contact, where I went through my entire load of uh, over 500 rounds. We're down to our last hand grenade. And the last round for the M79, we got it. Holy sh- can you uh Can you run through that? Oh, sure. You know, and, and this is where, <laughs> let me preface that by saying we got inserted on October 6th, 68. On October 5th, we had a nine-man recon team that went into the Ashtal Valley on a target. They went in with nine men. They got ambushed because the uh, team leader was new to Vietnam, Southeast Asia. He didn't listen to the little people, the Vietnamese and the veteran named Lynn Black, who had been had one tour of duty previous to come to Special Forces. And uh, he walked them into an ambush. Well, he was killed. The point man was killed. He had a firefight all day. And to get to the short of it, Lynn Black talked to the NBA general who ambushed him on October the 5th, what? 1968. 
So Lynn Black and Scott talked. The bottom line was that SOG recon team had three KIAs on the team. Everybody was wounded except for one American who never fired a shot during the whole firefight. The NVA had 9,000 casualties between KIAs, WIAs, and MIAs. And that NVA general told Lynn, so we have her right from the uh, enemy's soldiers saying, from one day. So the next day after that, we get inserted into a target. And on the 7th, which was a Monday, um, we had trackers on us. We couldn't lose them. So we got to a high spot, which was like a small knoll in triple canopy with some opening on the right-hand side of our flank. And uh, we made contact at 2 o'clock. We couldn't get any tack air for a couple of hours, but they kept coming out of the jungle at us. Yep. And we began stacking up the bodies. And at one point, the interpreter showed us where we had stacked up so many bodies that the NVA were stacking the dead so they could try to get a higher angle to shoot down at us. Fucking hell. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. How, well, how, yeah. How many were there of you? How many soldiers did you have? We had six. Six. Yeah, so we all had our, yeah, we had six. We all had our car 15s. <laughs> And, uh, of course, the M79. Yep. And uh, so we were in contact. We finally had TAC here about 4 o'clock. So we ran SPADs, uh, fast movers, helicopter gunship. But they kept coming at us, you know. And back then, by 1968, the NVA knew that when they heard the aircraft coming, like a helicopters or a SPAD, yep. an A-1 Skyraider, they would get close to our belt. So they would come at us. Because they could hear the aircraft, and they didn't want to get hit by the ordnance. Yeah, gotcha. So ah. we would blow them back into the uh, into the attack air, and then have that little death dance going on time yeah. after time. So they were trying to get close to you guys, so they so the aircraft didn't didn't drop the bombs. Right. Yeah. Because we had at that point, you had napalm. Yep. We had dropped five hundred pound bombs. We had cluster bomb units and uh, at traditional gun runs with twenty mic mic. <laughs> And the uh, 50 calibers. Yeah, well. With the Asian Sky Raiders. And that was the only thing that saved us. We had to tack air for several hours, and then we were able to keep them off of us until right at last light, a South Vietnamese helicopter came in and hovered for 10 minutes. And we, we struggled to get to it, but we finally got there, loaded up, and we got pulled out at last light. Yeah, right. That was my first real contact. And ha- ha- like, how many do you think uh, enemy KIA there were? We couldn't tell because, you know, that's the odd thing about jungle fighting is that our people could hear and see or smell them first. Like if I'm looking at the jungle, to be honest, and the NVA are there, until they open fire, I don't see them. Yeah, yeah. My South Vietnamese have better vision, and they had more jungle acumen from their years of being in the jungle. They always were able to open fire. We were never ambushed. So if they were trying to close on us or to sneak up on us, our guys would open fire first. We would gain fire superiority. And that's what would save our bacon. You know, those first eight to 10 seconds in a firefight, full automatic, we'd swap magazines and come back and get the superiority, at least in the Hopi. Most of the time, we had high ground. Yeah, well. That's... Can you um, run through the weapons that you had at that stage as well? Yeah, we had CAR 15s, which were a modified M16 and had a classable stock. The barrel was shorter and it was made by Colt. Yep. And um, during my 19 months in SOG, I, had, I went through three. I had one, and the one I lost when I passed out, uh, we were getting extracted on a rope. I passed out and landed in the jungle, and my teammate came out and picked me up, left all my gear, oh. my car 15, 
my sod knife because oh. we were still in Laos. Yeah. And he was worried. And, and they, the helicopter pilot didn't want to go down, but they convinced him to go down. And so I passed out right before I fell off the rope. And he came back to pick me up, threw me in the helicopter. We left. And all my gear, my sog knife, my car 15 are still in layout. So I got a new car 15 then. And when I came back from my second tour of duty, I had a car 15. So I always carried the car. Back then, we only had 20-round magazines. And we only had 18 rounds in each mag because of the spring factor. Yeah. And we always carried sawed-off M79s with uh, 10 to 12 rounds for that. One, uh, including one gas, in case we needed to break contact with the CS. Yeah. Okay. And then we had 10 to 12 hand grenades. <laughs> and I always carried the battery with the radio for FM radio, the PRC 25. Yeah, right. So you, you got yours a lot load, loaded up to the teeth. Yours is just bombed up as much big. as you can. We, as much as yeah. you can. We made it up to like 85, 90 pounds. If we had the uh, 7.62 uh, M60, but it was too heavy. So for our recon team, all of our missions, we always carried car 15s, and we had a Grenadier that came with us sometimes. Yeah. And Tuan was just a phenomenal. He was magic with his M79. He could stick a M79 man up in that ass at 500 yards. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> good. Yeah. 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 It, it, it is a good weapon, that uh, 70. We, we call it the Wombat Gun the, in the, Australia. Uh, grenade launcher. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, we call it the Wombat Gun, and it's such a just a good little tool just to oh, yeah. get out and touch Did people. Did you yours down? What's that? Did you saw your? Did you saw off the handle and the barrel? Uh, yeah, we couldn't kind of do stuff like that in uh, in our era, but I'm sure you could do whatever you wanted back in Vietnam. We <laughs> had all of ours were sawed up to this. Yeah, right. right. Cut the handle down, just had enough to hold it, and then we did the barrel. We cut the barrel back <laughs> to the very end, yeah. uh, where where the support bar was. Yeah, and we tested. We kept coming back because you know you need those number of rounds before it arms itself. Exactly. Testing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so overall oh, yeah. length of the um, Wombat gun or the M- M79, how how long was it, John? Or how big or how small was it? The full length? I don't know. We what? never used it. Oh. My, my grenadier would have, he had a full length M79. He had his with the uh, with the uh, sight on it and everything. Yeah. So he could just. Gotcha. Yep, yep. Two on it was really good with that thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, there were times we even used the M79 for like artillery. You know, you just shoot up at an angle so it would come down on their heads. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is a good good tool. Um, you, had a few rounds, you had a few rounds of uh, either flash jets or the uh, uh, the zero-odd buck. Yep. So that if you're changing magazines, they came out, actually, that, that would just that would stop anything. <laughs> so you had a buckshot in your in your grenade launcher round? Yes. That was, yeah. So like when we were marching, like when we were all moving, that would be the first round in there would be that because if we needed anything for close contact. Yeah. You know, the N79 is not that good at close contact. And then even in the junk, we had to find little ways to get the round go far enough before it would explode. But like I said, we we went through our rounds several times. There was at least twice at the end of the firefight. We got to the LZ and we were extracted. I was down to my last magazine, last grenade. Fuck. And that was over 600 rounds for Jesus a car fit. And, and how many times did this happen where you were depleted well, in ammunition? That's at least twice. I remember we were down right down to that last magazine. And they were coming at us hard. What's going through your mind at that, you know, and I know it's a long time ago, but what's going through your mind? You know, last last magazine, the, fixed bayonets. Uh, well, we didn't have bayonets for car 15. Yeah, yeah. We had our sawing knife. So, you know, but I think 
the quick answer would be the animal song. We got to get out of this place. <laughs> we got to get, get out, out of this place. <laughs> if it's the last thing we <laughs> ever do. We ever do. Oh, yeah. Where's yeah. Eric Burton when we need him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, awesome. In regards to your missions, um, were you infiltrated by uh, Hilo or was it by foot, vehicle? Helicopters. Helicopters all the time? Yeah, because, uh, yeah and uh, that was part of the problem because you, uh, by 1968, the NBA had trail watchers and they had monitors at the border so that if they would see helicopters coming uh, from our FOB, we were told that somebody would signal that we were leaving. Yeah. yeah. And so it would be about 30 minutes, 40 minutes across the Astral. And they had people there that would spot where we were going, what our azimuth was, and they had trail watchers. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times the biggest uh, issue for us was to get inserted into a target without um, picking up trackers right away. Yeah. Being able to get on the ground and uh, to get on with the mission. Yeah, right. And they were uh, in Hueys? No. In our case, um, this is one of those culture shock things. Yeah. You guys may have had this when you were in country, if you did any flying with other other countries, other air assets. In our case, yeah, we trained with UEs in, in the U.S. and Vietnam. Our training was with UEs. They had a couple of experimental helicopters that they worked with us. So the first time after our, our top secret briefing was SOG headquarters, they said, okay, go to Da Nang. There'll be a... H-34 started, well, we didn't know where the H-34 was, but it was the old Sikorsky had a um, reciprocal engine, a nine-cylinder engine that was in the B-17 yep. bomber. Right. And this old helicopter, it would cough and sputter when it first started. <laughs> you're sitting there going, is this thing going to be able to even run? <laughs> but, of course, that's just the way they started. Yeah. And in the end, we liked them better than the UE because even though it only had one door, it could take more hits than the UE could. Yeah, gotcha. I suppose that's good, isn't it? (laughs) That was our introduction to South Vietnamese airports. As it turned out, those South Vietnamese airports, I mean, pilots, if they weighed 100 pounds, 50 pounds were gonads. (laughs) 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 Those men had heart, and they always came for us. How did they? How was it flying? That day on October seventh, we got extracted. He hovered for 10 minutes waiting for us. Wow! And that night. We came back. He dropped us off. I said, hey, come over, buy a drink. He said, no, I'm going home to my family. Wow. He came back a couple of days later. He told that helicopter had 48 holes in it, including one where the, um, a 12.7 went through the prop. Big round, too. Yeah, that'd be grand. Um, so you always flew with uh, South Vietnamese pilots. Um, for my first tour of duty, the majority of the time, sometimes we had the first cab, sometimes be the 101st Airborne, but through all of our insertions, <clears throat> all of our insertions and everything, that was strictly South Vietnamese. Yeah. They put us in, and more importantly, they came and got us. Yeah. And we always left under fire. I mean, there wasn't a question of whether or not we were going to be under fire. The only question was how much. How much? Like on October, when we left on October um, 7th, the jungle was dark green. And all you could see was red flashes. It looked like Christmas. You had the dark green yep. with the red flashes and the green tracers coming up for us. It was amazing. And it looked like dozens. Of course, now I'm going to say hundreds, hundreds of light. Yeah. They're all shooting at us. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's crazy. And oh, yeah. um, in regards to your um, Special Forces team, were you working with the same guys the whole time? Yes. We were very lucky there. That's, that's uh, awesome. Lucky. 
we, we had a tragic beginning. The way I got my job was um, we came into camp, a recon team went into a mission and disappeared. To this day, the Americans and that team, the South Vietnamese, remain missing in action. Oh, wow. And yeah. they are, um, uh, Glenn Lane was the team leader, and uh, Robert Owen was the assistant team leader. And uh, they today are amongst the 1,584 Americans that are still listed missing in action. And 50 Green Berets are still missing in action. Wow. Justin Lane from the Secret War. On top of that, there's 80-plus aviators who died supporting us. That would be A-1 sky raiders, uh, helicopter pilots, uh, fast movers that got shot down supporting us. And, so, and uh, by, the other thing about 68 was President Johnson had uh, ended the bombing campaign in Hanoi. So that gave the NBA more anti-aircraft weaponry to bring down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yep. So by the end of 68 and 69, you know, they had everything. 37 Mike Mike is like, you know, the World War II movie pictures, the Battle of Britain. Yeah. You yeah. see all the attack. Yep, yep. They had that. And they were trying to shoot down our helicopter. They, uh, and there were occasions when they did shoot no. with attack. That's just, uh, it's just. It you know we get we get a lot of stories here in Australia from you know our military in regards to the Vietnam War, but it's just, it seems like it was just such a different uh, war for you know different militaries. And well, yeah, and you know I I've met a few gentlemen from Australia that were in the SAS. Yeah, saw some nasty combat. So yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. They earned their paychecks there. Yeah, and uh, just depending on again the the one of the rules of jungle warfare. The NVA and the Viet Cong would fight when they wanted to fight. And uh, because of that, you know, uh, we were always on the tail end of it. In our case, they would track us. We knew we'd have trackers on us, and we'd still try to get the mission if we could. Yeah, That was the biggest challenge, was to get away from the trackers. And then to do the mission was a wiretap, try to get a POW. We have point reconnaissance, area reconnaissance. And uh, bomb damage assessments, things like that. Yeah, right. And uh, how long was this first deployment? So, how, how long did you do in total in Vietnam? At in '68, everybody did a one-year deployment. Yep. Wow. And then you came home. You could extend. And at that time, I had a a, a, a girl's friend, a speed thing back home, so I came home. <laughs> Sweet thing. <laughs> I hated being in the states, yeah. and uh, I came home in April '69. Got back in the United States by May. And then I was up at Fort Devens for about five months. Hated every minute of it. Yep. And volunteered, went to the Pentagon, got my orders cut to go back to Vietnam. So I went back and landed there in October of 69, got back on the team. Same team as RT, Recon Team Idaho. Yeah, nice. That's uh, that's pretty cool how you get back to your same team as well. But yeah, I was very fortunate. And, and again, um, the South Vietnamese and our team were heroic. I mean, I'm alive today thanks to their courage. And then thanks to the helicopter pilots that always came and pulled us out in the air as such. Yeah. What what changed from when you left Vietnam and then you returned um, months later? Like what was the, the biggest change? Obviously you would have um, you would have lost well, some more anti aircraft. Yeah. And and they, they had more NVA. Yeah. By uh, sixty nine, the North Vietnamese Army had a company a company, one or two companies that were trained, highly trained sappers. And their sole mission was to find SOG recon teams and kill the Americans only. And they yeah. and that rule was in place for psyops, you know, for psychological uh, effort. Because, um, like, we had a team 
on January 1st, 59. We Americans are wiped out. The South Vietnamese are allowed to live. And when he came back, there was a lot of questions like, well, why did you guys get back? Why did you guys desert the Americans? Well, it took a while, but it was the, the sappers were highly trained. They would only wear a loincloth, a weapon. And in 1968, August, they hit one of our camps and they killed 16 Green Berets in one day in our camp. Wow. And they had they hit us with over 100 soldiers, enemy soldiers that had trained and planned the mission for over a year. And a lot of them were little bandanas that we came to die. And they did. So, so that was what we were putting up with. So in answer to your question, what was different? Initially, we heard intel reports in 68 about these teams. Well, they proved they were there in August of 68. And then January 1st, 69, they just wiped out all the Americans out. And we had another team got wiped out the same way uh, in November of 69. All the Americans were killed and the little people left uh, were left alive. They're just absolute savages, aren't they? The North Vietnamese. Oh, yeah. And they're communists. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, they'll lie and they don't listen to or or any rules of combat, you know, like the Geneva rules and the audits. They don't pay attention to that. In fact, we had one of our first casualties of January 68, the Sergeant Bill Rosa. He was killed and they came back and fried his body with a flamethrower. And they kept one American alive just so he could watch it happen. So he could go back and tell the fellow troops about what had happened. Said, you run recon against us. This is what's going to happen. They're fucking cruel motherfuckers. They're just absolute savages. Oh, yeah. Fuck. You oh, hate absolutely. To, you hate to think what happened to all the, um, the MIA and the POWs that they captured, like the Australians and um, Yanks. You know, it's it's sad to think what happened to them. I remember reading a story about the thing at the Australian clearance stores and maybe SAS. They captured a group and they cut the heads off and like pulled out the spines and hung, hung them from the tree. You know, they're just, oh, yeah. they're just absolute animals. Oh, yeah. We had another time when one of our guys was killed. They decapitated him. They cut out his guts, pulled out all his intestines, cut off his dick, put it in his mouth, and stuck his head in the cavity so that whoever came in to find the body found the body. Like, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Bad. I can't imagine it. It's right up there with ISIS. Who's the biggest scumbag? ISIS yeah. or any communist or any per- People that train up like that, they're just evil people. They are, yeah, evil, evil yeah. people, and there's good people out there to take out that evil, which is good, like yourself. Um, but, John, in your book, uh, we'll get to a bit sort of, I wouldn't say funny story, but a bit more like um, wild story. Uh, you were, I think you were sleeping or you were on night patrol, and there was an NVA I was crawling up, and you said he was only moving when the when the wind moved. Could you just well, touch on that story? Of, that was one of, the, one of my uh, most unusual missions because <laughs> – um, for a couple of days previous to that, we had been shot out of our target. We would go into a target for an LZ, a primary, get shot out, go to secondary, get shot out, and then go to the alternate and get shot out. Well, by mm. then we're out of gas, go back, eat lunch. They would refuel an S3, which is the operations, would say, here's a new target. Go do something. I forget what it would be. So, again, in the afternoon, we get shot out primary, the secondary author. That happened two or three days in a row. Then finally, in the morning, this happened on one day, came back, had lunch. I changed some some of our team members around, our South Vietnamese. And it was myself, Bubba Shore, and Henry King came on as a strap hanger. We went out and we got inserted. And the weather was really shaky. But we got in, we moved up this mountain, and I moved really quick. Because often we would move like 10 to 10, being very cautious. You move 10 minutes, then you listen to the jungle. Because listening to the jungle, you learned a lot. Yeah, right. And 
you if you didn't hear normal jungle sounds, then something was wrong. And it was just a question of what was wrong. And normally it would be the bad guys hunting for us and whether and the question would be, had they found us. So in this case, we went up this mountain, a huge trail. You couldn't see it from the air, but it's big enough for tanks to go down side by side. We crossed the trail. We set up a wiretap. We set up an ambush. And the ambush was designed so that there was a block of C4 in the middle. And so the person would come through in the kill zone. The person there would get knocked unconscious by the C4. The claymores would kill everybody else. And then our gunners would finish off anybody else. We had claymores on each side and a claymore in the back for security purposes. So we had it all set up. We're sitting there fat and sassy just watching the NBA. We're diddy bopping down the trail. They didn't know we were there yep. because we had moved so far, so fast. Yeah. And uh, so the uh, fact came back and I, I gave him the code, said, hey, we can do this. You know, I'll meet you at the LZ in one hour. I get a POW for you. He said, don't move. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone see an LZ. And as soon as that happened, we heard tanks above us. Then we heard dogs down at the LZ and they started hunting for us. And then we got up and moved into the night. We came to a stream, not really a big stream, but we moved up this thing for an hour into the dark. We stayed in the water. At one point we came out because the dogs were coming for us. And then we put down uh, pepper, black pepper, and powdered mace to mess up their noses. Oh, right. And so, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock, we went up to one bank, and we put our RON for the night. And I was, I was facing the riverbank. And that gets to your point where I'm facing that little stream, and the bank was maybe 12, 15 feet from the river up to where I'm sitting. Two guys walked past. One had a lantern. They walked past, and then the lantern ran out. They turned around, and they came back. Well, none of my other guys saw this. And when they got right by me, Hep, my interpreter, coughed. And so one of the NDA crawled up that hill, and he only moved when the wind blew. He came up, and eventually he got to me, and he touched my boot. I'm sitting there, my feet spread, my car 15 right at him. Had he done anything <laughs> sudden, it would have been his last movement. But then I heard him, he, I heard him go, <gasps> like that. He caught his breath. He touched my ten, <laughs> my size ten jungle boot. Wow! And then he moved down the hill, but he only moved again when the jungle, when the yeah, wind. Right. So he was more surprised that he found you as well. You both startled, oh, yeah. started, startled each other. So he left first light. We left because they came at us that night with hundreds of soldiers armed with lanterns and AKs. But we had gotten far enough up the hill; they just never realized exactly where we were. Yep. So. um we we made it. Next day, we marched all day up the hill. Got to the top of the mountain. We were socked in for five days. Then we ran out of food. I, I had a chipped tooth that fell apart. I kept packing it with rice. And we got extracted in the morning. And we left under heavy enemy fire. Yep. And, and uh, uh, I, I got my tooth pulled. Next day, we had a new target. We the next minute. Yeah, right. And just back to the NBA when he's touching your boot. Um, obviously, he was a, a scout, I'd say, obviously, for his uh, platoon or whatever was out there. How, how many do you, how many enemy do you think there was around? Well, Sal, earlier in the night, Sal, uh, he was our counterpart. He was the Vietnamese team leader for our team. And when I arrived there in 68, Sal and Hep, our interpreter, they've been in the secret war running recon for over two and a half years. And um, Sal had climbed a tree, and he could look down – he said there are hundreds of soldiers coming with lanterns. Yeah, right. He saw, and we heard the dogs. I mean, they had several dogs that were coming 
And as we were going up that trail, if we turned around and looked back, it would be spread across the jungle in the background. You could just hear them coming. Yep. And that's why I kept pushing. And we lucked out. We got far enough ahead of them that most of them had their lanterns. Yeah. So that's obvious, obviously the reason why you didn't put a bullet in that bike's head. Because yeah, if you they moved suddenly, it would. Because, yeah. you know, at that point, the the uh, search body didn't know where we were. So only that mm. guy knew. And I knew he had to get back down the mountain to tell them. And by that time, I knew we were two or three hours away from first light. Yeah. So we were, we would move out, which we did. Yeah. Why do you think they had the lanterns? Do they were just trying to have like a presence there? So the American soldiers were thinking like, oh, fuck, there's like there's, there's thousands of troops coming down. Or do you reckon that, yeah, that, 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 that was another war, war tactic, warfare, jungle tactic, like a, a shock and no, all type thing? Well, when it was nighttime, we usually – we didn't have any night vision or anything. So we would yeah. usually stop at night. But that's why I stayed in that stream for another hour, moving up. Up the that that river, we are not a river, but a stream, mm. small, because um, we didn't know how many were coming for. Yeah, um, you know, let's just say MVG were present in that that era. It still wouldn't work anyway. It's too much canopy. It's too no, dark. No yeah. ambient light. Oh yeah, yeah. Which you know, I've, I've done a bit of jungle training here in Australia and uh, out in Singapore and Malaysia, and um, yeah, MVGs just don't work under jungle. There's no no ambient light, which is shit. I think I think that's a huge myth. Everyone's like, oh, it's so dark. We have MVGs. It's like MVGs work off the minimal light, so yeah. stars, the moon, whatever. Ambient light. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You need the ambient light. Yeah, need need a little bit of light to. I don't know. For, for, for I don't work. Know. Yeah, it's, it's science that we don't know about. Well, you know. guys broke my my dream. My dream was someday to go back and have nods at night. You know? <laughs> but they don't work in the jungle. Well, never mind. <laughs> yeah. got, I'm pretty sure they got like thermal going, so it's probably better. Yeah. So um. Yeah. That that story is. Uh, it, I get, you know, it's Mate, one of those things, like, what do you do? I would have been fucking The enemy touches bricks. your foot and, you know, do you blow his head off or you just let him crawl? And it's a roll of the dice on what you do. But obviously at the same time, John, he, he could have shot, shot you as well, you know, at the exact same, same time. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But I figured yeah. if he touched my my boot with one hand with and I knew his buddy down the hill it was holding the lantern with the other. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't see my hand in front of me. You know what it's like. Yeah. Even in the junk. Yeah. Mm feel your hand but you can't see it and they didn't know where we were and so i wanted to avoid um giving them any help to help locate us. yeah well you, well you made the right choice mate because you're still here exactly i'd rather be lucky and good anytime <laughs> <laughs> um so after, so after that mission john um what happened, what happened next so the first light um you guys packed up and and went left yeah, we literally we moved all day up the hill it was, yeah. it, it was um it was a huge mountain, and there we moved. In the morning, we moved really hard because I just wanted to get as far away from there as possible. And uh, we, at one point, came into a jungle that had a lot more opening to it, so we separated the team. We are, our trail of march would have like eight to ten feet between each guy. But we moved. We took breaks. We would do the normal listening, and then once we got into the thicker jungle, we'd do the ten, move ten, sit ten, and. Uh, by the end of the day, we were all beat. Our tongues were hanging on. Yeah. You know, and at one point, um, we had seen, I didn't see him, but our point man, uh, Sone and Sal was right behind him. They saw woodcutters, and the woodcutters saw us, which I wasn't aware of, but they gave us the sign. We waited, and the woodcutters left. 
and Sal and Soam went up to the area where the woodcutters were working. And there was obvious lumber where they'd been working all day. And um, so the only question was, will they come back with their friends? And so we were dead tired. And we took a break. And uh, when we got up, I got fell down. I was in the process of getting up. But I was off balance because the hill was pretty steep. And I landed right on my face. My face is in that jungle rot floor. I tried to get up again, fell down again. Again, landing on my face because I had my car 15. It was an awkward position. I hurt my bad knee in the fall. I remember just lying there going, oh, all I wanted to do was roll over and go to sleep. But I was tired. I was beat. Yeah. As nothing else was on my mind. The fatigue, I was just so overwhelmed. But then I also knew that seven other set of eyes were on my dumb ass. Yeah. And so um, it took a minute. But I finally got up. Sal got us to the top of the mountain. And then that night, we had another psychedelic, uh, not psychedelic, but a um, an odd experience where two mountains away, the whole entire mountainside lit up like Broadway with, with hundreds of bright lights. And I got on the FM radio, we could hear Russian. And the Russians were coming in with a with their aerial resupply. They came in and we heard the planes come in, boom, boom, dropping off supplies. So I'm on the radio trying to get right. tack air. Anybody got it. I wanted to shoot down at Russia more than anything in the world. But we couldn't get attacked here. But again, this is like, welcome to the jungle, baby. Yeah, yeah. 100%. So obviously the Russians were fueling up the NVA. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. they've been supporting them all along. Russia, yeah. China to a lesser extent, and the all Eastern Bloc country. They have the Cubans. They had Cubans there. Really? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were there training them up. We, in fact, one of the, uh, um, after I came home, Lynn Black was the team leader. So Lynn Black and Doug Letourneau were on a mission in Laos, and uh, at one point, Doug was Doug carried the radio, and a voice came up and said, uh, "RT Idaho, RT Idaho, we know where you are, and here's your six-digit coordinates. We're going to come get you." And Doug goes, "Who's this?" Because he there's no aircraft. The bottom line was <clears throat> it was a Cuban. So at some point, Lynn Black heard Doug talking. He goes, "You know, we don't talk on the radio unless it's a combo check, yeah, or tack air." You mm. just don't talk on the radio because the, uh, you know, by 69, the NBA had extremely good RDF, radio direction finding. Yeah. And they were really, you know, if you're on the radio too long, they would come pin your ass down on that alone. So Lynn was really pissed that the freshman was talking. To so Lynn gets some things. Who is he? I don't know. So Lynn talked to him and the guy goes, yeah, we know where you are. We're going to come get you. And Lynn goes, well, let me give you my eight digit coordinates come and get me motherfucker <laughs> good on you lean on high ground we're on pretty high ground and the guy had a couple more insults back and forth and then lynn goes you know by the way your mother was a piss poor prostitute because she would have gotten you a job in the united states or europe but because she was bad in bed you're stuck here in Southeast Asia. Your mom sucks. <laughs> Lynn, cal calm down, yeah, mate. Right. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really? <laughs> so what happened then? Did yeah. they did they find us or were you guys like, oh, fuck, sweet, here we go? No, he, he gave them APS a quarters. They just FTA, failed to appear. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> they ran, their, they completed the mission. And they they got out. They ended a five day mission. <laughs> Fuck that is, that is that is wild. <laughs> Come get another me, day in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, in re in regards to where you were based out of, you know, you're just doing you're just doing a lot of short missions. Just fly in, do your job, and then fly back out, get back to base. Um, 
Well, yeah, the missions were usually five-day missions. We designed it up a lot of times with the trackers, weather, and just the NVA in the area. Yeah. It was like a big game of hide-and-go-seek, just that was a deadlier version of it. Yeah. So when you weren't on mission, you're back on base, were you, uh, was it, how, 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 like, how did you, you know, how, like you'd like down, well, how'd, down you, time. how'd you relax? Yeah, downtime. Was there nah, nah. booze and chicks and card games? Well, we, and We had a clubhouse. Yeah, and we had a really good uh, a mess hall was the best in the country. We uh, the uh, the cook for our mess hall had been the chef for the Imperial Hotel in Hanoi. Yeah, and the agency hired him uh, when the war started, and he ended up at FOB one. So in the morning you'd have two or three styles of eggs. Oh wow! Lunch with two choices. Dinner was, and then he would go out and get steaks and stuff. And so on Sundays we always have steaks. But you no, know, our training was very intense, and um, there wasn't too much time to screw off. In the night, you wind up in the clubhouse, play poker. But the key thing was, whenever a team came back from the mission, you always, like particularly us young guys, we would always go talk to the other Americans to see what it was, what they're up against. You could learn from them to see what the latest tactics were, what the latest things were going yeah. on in the field. Yep. And then we had teams that would be out all night. They couldn't get them out in the daytime. And then at night, they'd have uh Heavy air cover. So in the beginning, we spooky, spook, spooky that had the old C forty seven, had one or two mini guns, and they could circle around a team, provide cover fire. Yeah. And then later they progressed to um, Shadow, which was a C one ninety, and had maybe a little bit more computers, and they had the same kind of weapons, and they also had twenty Mike Mike cannons. Then they yeah, came well. out with the Stinger, and then of course the Spectre, which you guys are familiar with today. Yeah. 130s, which you know, one of our targets, we we went through three or four in one night. Jesus, yeah, <laughs> that, that, we fully expended them. They're an incredible machine too. The the Spectre gunships. Oh, oh yeah, they brought them within like 25, 25 feet of our perimeter. We had to say though, I had to go on the radio. I mean, they're coming at us at night. They're crawling in the air force. I said I want it twenty five meters. <laughs> they go, you have to accept responsibilities for any chasm. <laughs> So I go, I accept any responsibility. Now kill these motherfuckers. <laughs> at, any, at any time during that your um, Vietnam War campaign, did you ever use the naval gunfire support from any um, Iowa class ships? So any any Yank ships or any Australian ships? No, no. To the best of my knowledge, everything we had was all U.S. Yeah, everything was across the fence. And, yeah, right and for aircraft to do missions in, in Laos, there was a whole Air Force or Marine Corps, Navy protocol yeah. they had to go through and uh, so i'm not aware of anything from australia or new zealand uh right did you use any um like navy navy ships for like bombardment oh no we were too far inland yes yeah. once once we went across the fence in the laos of cambodia we were outside of uh artillery yeah now some of our teams would be closer to the border they could use some artillery and we've had teams that had success with that but in our case we were so deep there's no artillery uh, no conventional units to come. And yeah. Of course, we were winning with sterile fatigues, no ID, uh, no dog tags or anything. Okay, and right. So no, no Navy. You guys are, you blokes are too far out. Yeah. They, they, uh, yeah. On the other hand, Navy <laughs> did do work with the SEALs going up to North Vietnam, and they went up putting some spies and stuff like this, and at least two SEALs got medals of honor um, during the Vietnam War for missions yeah. that were in North Vietnam. Fuck, yeah, very. typical, na- typical Navy, though, mate. The typical Navy just sitting on their boats, you know, 
having oh, yeah. nice warm meals, sleeping in their nice warm beds every night. Foxtel air conditioning. <laughs> and then, you know, um, the other thing was we had one of our teams had a, a training mission. It was in country and they're on an island and, you know, quote, minimal enemy activity. Well, they made contact with NVA and Vietcong and they had pushed the recon team off the mountain and they had done this ongoing battle where they were right down the South China Sea. They couldn't get helicopters and uh, Lynn Black was on the mission and he had met a sailor who said, oh yeah, we had these boats. If you ever need any help, just give me a call. But Lynn kept the guys frequent. He called them up and said, we need your help. And the Navy came with one of those PT boats or whatever the hell they call yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. But they had, had two or three 50 calibers. On the front of it, yeah. And the boat came in and saved the recon team's ass. Hectic. So that's that's for you, brother. Go, go Navy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Navy dog team. That, that's an accurate story. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, this Lynn Black, is he still alive? Very much so, yes. He's alive Ooh. up in Washington State. Um, he's just an amazing man. He had a tour of duty with the 173rd, and then he ran missions in SOG. And that one from October 5th is of legend. It's one of our, if you had like a Hall of Fame SOG stories, Lynn's right up there with the top five. Yeah, right. Sure. And you still speak to him regularly? Not regularly. Um, he's um, he's very busy these days yeah. between his art and being physical. Uh, he does a lot of work around the house, rebuilding the house. Yeah. He, had, he lived in the National Forest area or some kind of conservation area. Yeah. So he's always working, cutting down wood, firewood. He's just one busy dude. Yeah. And he's a very gifted artist. I mean, we used to sit in the hooch at night and our little people would come by and Lynn would do um, yep. <laughs> uh, like uh, charcoal etchings. Yeah. Okay. And, and oh, it would be exquisite art. It's just beautiful. Yeah, right. He just sounds like an interesting man. Yeah. Say again? He sounds like an interesting man. Like, Oh, he's just, amazing. Just he's have amazing. stories after yeah. stories. Well, yeah. Plus, he's the guy that, you know, he talked about that ambush with the C4. Yeah developed that by blowing himself up he kept practicing <laughs> on it that's the day awesome he blew, he, the day he knocked himself out he came back to camp he couldn't hear because his ears were knocked out his hair was all like I did it I did it I figured out what this is what the size of the C4 is what? how'd you do it man? well I knocked myself out okay <laughs> So that you're referring back to when you got ambushed from all the claymores, but then you had to knock a um, NVA person out to take him back for a POW, correct? Is that the story you relate to? We wanted to, but we, yeah. you know, it didn't quite work out that way. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. So um, so 69, that was your last uh, deployment, and then you get back to- Yeah, I got there in October 69 and ran recon until April 70. Okay. Yep. So, and then from there, uh, that was your- Last um, hooray in um, Vietnam, April seventy. We had a right. We had a four-man team. We were in the Asphalt Valley. We made some minimal contact with the enemy, and it's just a long story. But basically, the commanding officer wouldn't pull us out of the field. We asked for extraction, so we were on the ground for another hour or two, and then uh, Covey came by the fact, and we were still in on, on and off mild contact, and so they finally came in and pulled us out on ropes. You know, when you're getting pulled out on ropes, when they shoot at you, you always feel like they're just shooting for your balls. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we got pulled out on ropes. And before we got pulled out, we had A1 Sky Raiders making gun runs. Yep. So one time this one Sky Raider came in with a gun run 
And the last second he flipped on the side, he was so close to me that I could tell you he was smoking a Philly cheroot. Yeah, right. And he saluted, I saluted him. Wow. Fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they, those, those A1 Skybird, when they did a gun run, they were right on the deck. Yeah. Because they're a single propeller. Yeah, of course, yeah. But the, but by staying close to the deck, they minimize their their uh, getting damaged or getting shot out of the sky. Yeah, gotcha. Fast enough that people couldn't predict when they get in the clear long enough to shoot at them. Yeah, yeah gotcha, gotcha. So um, you get back to the U.S. Uh, May 70? No, I came home in uh, April 1970. April, yep. Yeah, and then uh, went back to school. Made up my school grades, got involved with a school newspaper there. Yep. Thing got a job at the Trenton Times in Trenton, New Jersey. Was there for ten years. Worked, to, came out to San Diego, worked at a newspaper there for seven. And then there was one, a smaller newspaper up north in North San Diego County. Yeah. I was there until two thousand and eight, and then up until last year, I worked helping veterans get affordable housing. Yeah, nice, at mate. Two different nonprofits. Awesome, awesome. What was the reason for you leaving the military? Um. Several. Um, the war was no. By that time, there were they called it a Vietnamization, which was the process of us turning the war to Vietnam, just like with Afghanistan. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> so they were scaling back. There was reduction in forces, and soldiers that had lived through the Korean War saw the reduction in forces. A horrible time when uh, people get demoted. Yeah. You lose rank, grade, everything. And I just didn't think I had a stomach for it. Yep. So um, I ran recon for 19 months. I figured if my body was still in one piece, maybe it's time to go back. So I went back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've been talking for a good hour, and uh, it's been awesome. It's, it's um, time flies for having fun there, man. Yeah, so. yeah. I've, yeah, I've actually enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I'd lo- love to just sit around and talk more. And definitely we should do it one day. We we'll, have a, we'll have a beer and talk more about it. Um, rebound. Yeah. <laughs> John, uh, sorry to cut off the map. You've got five books out? No more. We have three books. Three books, sorry. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's across okay. the fence. Well, the reason why there's confusion is we had Across the Fence. It first came out in 2003. Yep. And then I did a across the fence the expanded edition. Okay. That was technically you could say that's two books, but it's the basically I added three chapters and fifty photographs to that book. Okay. And well, that's why the expanded version. Then we have On the Ground and then Saw Chronicles Volume One. Yep. Which detailed um, Operation Tailwind, where um, sixteen Green Berets and uh, one hundred and twenty Indigenous troops went into deep layoffs beyond our regular area of operations to relieve the CIA that was in a mortal combat with the NDA. And they accomplished the mission. They knocked out, got a huge intelligence coup. They overran two uh, command centers and just got a lot of intelligence. The, uh, uh, they were on the ground. They moved day and night, kept the NDA off balance. And uh, the one Green Beret medic received the Medal of Honor from President Trump in October of 2017, Mike Rose. Yep. And there were 16 Green Berets. There were 36 Purple Hearts handed out to, to the Green Berets on that mission. Yeah, wow. Fuck. So that's the third book. Yeah, right, and those books are available on Amazon? Yes, everybody can go right to Amazon. The first two, Across the Fence and On the Ground, are available as uh, e-books. And as audio books now. Awesome. Right. Oh, cool. Well, we'll um, put yeah. some links up yeah, as definitely. well. Definitely. And the paper, paperbacks are out there as well, obviously. Yes. 
And, awesome. and or don't forget, we're, we're doing SOG podcast now. Jocko Willing has allowed me to interview SOG veterans. So I've done 10 interviews now. Oh, wow. And if you, if you go to my website, which is SOG Chronicles, you'll see the first four links there. And go through those links, and you'll see me interviewing other SOG guys. That's awesome. And this is yeah, Jocko yeah. Productions. Yeah. So yeah. please share that word with anybody, all your many viewers and your team there, and uh, put out the good word. you got any questions, you've got my email. Yep. Um, just tell them to tell me that uh, we work with me, with Matt or Shane, you know, and uh, yeah. friends, of you, friends of mine. Yeah, awesome, awesome. That's it. Um, for our guests, mate, we have two final questions. Um, yeah. Uh, the first question: Well, what advice can you give to people uh, to complete their, you know, complete their dreams or complete their goals? It doesn't have to be military guys. It's for you know anyone in general, civilians, anyone that wants to do something. You know, how did you get through your time in you know Vietnam and you know being a Green Beret of all things as well? Well, at that time, the Green well, the Green Berets were the top military unit that we had. And uh, I didn't know if I could make it or not. So once I got in, uh, that to me was um, such an honor just to be, to accomplish the training, then to serve with them, and then to serve with the top secret operation, which was the state of the art at that time. It was a real honor. So I didn't want to, I wanted to serve to the best of my ability. And that attitude was something I carried forward for the rest of my life, yeah, which nice. was no matter, and no matter how bad it was. I mean, we had bad situations, whether you're going through a divorce or you get laid off at work or other issues that are family related or work related, you know, I could always go, Oh, it's a bad day, but you know what? There ain't no NVA coming at me with AK 47. Ex- and RPGs. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, never quit. If you really want something, go for it and stay strong and, and, uh, don't doubt yourself. Awesome. Cause you get through and serve like you guys, you all serve. And when you come home, you've got that background. You've been there. And, uh, uh, that's why it's hard to understand. It's really sad to see this whole suicide thing going on today. It's just hard to understand. It, yeah. is, it is a bit, isn't it? It's, it's, it sounds like it's all militaries too, not just, you know. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, it's massive. And we're, uh, in Australia, it's probably about one a week, one veteran a week from Afghanistan that taking their own wow. lives. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It is. That's the bad. only thing. They, they had the training, so if they make up their mind, they're going to do it. They got the training to do it. That's just sad. Yeah, exactly. They got they got the willpower to, to do it as well. Like, yeah, they just, they just know they want to do it, and it's, it's, it's over, which is, which yeah. is sad. Yeah. And what's your last question, Matt? Say again, sorry? Last question. Your last question. Oh, sorry, yeah, Matt. Yeah, mate, the last question is, uh, you know, you're helping veterans at the moment, you know, finding housing, et cetera. Is, is this, you know, what, what do you, where do you see yourself for the future? What's the plans? Retirement? Well, no longer doing the nonprofits. We moved to Tennessee. Yep. When I, when I lived in Oceanside. I worked uh, in Oceanside, California. I had been on two separate nonprofits where we help veterans. So now I'm here, but those nonprofits are still in California. They don't have any affiliation in Tennessee. So I'm focusing on the podcast with Jocko. And if anybody hasn't seen the Jocko podcast, like Jocko 180 is the first one. If they Google Jocko podcast 180, there's seven others. Yeah. The Cowboy, one with uh, Captain uh, Captain On. Yep. And they're just amazing men that, that served with us and fought with us, you know? Yeah. And so we're doing the podcast. And we hope eventually, once we get settled into our home, um, to write, start writing book four and tell more of the SOG stories. That's awesome. That is cool. Sure. That's my goal, brother. Yeah, awesome, you know, awesome. The, the model is going to be right till we die. <laughs> right till you die. Yeah, nice, mate. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, so if uh, people want to find your books, they can head to uh, Amazon 
And uh, so you the know, Saw Chronicles. Yeah, Saw or Saw Chronicles. Chronicles. Saw com. Yep. Is it so is right that, there? The books are there. The podcast links are there. Yes, yeah, I was about to ask so, that. Is that linked on your Instagram page? Uh, that's a good question. I'll my just... daughter does my Instagram page. I have to go find out. <laughs> I'm not too good at this high tech stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I can. Uh, I'm just yeah. getting the speed on. <laughs> yeah, right. So again, uh, it, our is, listeners, it is linked. Sorry, it is linked. Yeah, there you go. Good. So it is linked on oh, his Instagram. You got link through. You got uh, your podcast. You got heaps, of, heaps of shit on there. Fuck, you got heaps. Yeah, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Oh, it's got all the episodes as well oh, for Jocko. Jocko, yeah. So yeah, awesome. So your daughters looked looked after you very, very well there. Oh, thank you. I pay a lot. Of, no, I'm only kidding. She's just like, <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, nice, mate. And um, yeah, no, we again appreciate your time. And you know, um, Shane reached Very out good. to you, and you got back to us, and it's it's been awesome. Again, you were our first uh, um, Vietnam vet, Vietnam vet that we've had on, and especially. Well, you know, I hope none of your viewers fell asleep. <laughs> no, I don't think they will. I don't think they will. That was actually cool. And and for our listeners, that's something a small. I keep, keep Sorry, John. Good work here. Yeah, dog. Yeah, we do. It's just we love we love finding new people and like chatting to people. Um, it's just a thing that Matt and I have started uh, back in April. Yeah. Um, and we've we've seen it grow. You know, we've we're slowly getting 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 to the top. You know, or to the top what it is. Well, Don't know at the moment. But... Link. I'll have my daughter put it up on our Instagram. Account. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. Great. And, and and you know, well, as, fun. yeah, exactly. And as we we're talking about before, it, you know, we we started this to help veterans. You know, to you know hear stories from, you know, people like yourself that have that never quit, you know, attitude and, you know, life's so much greener on the other side. And again, as you said, mate, you don't have the MVA charging at you with AK-47. So, you know, life could be a lot worse. Oh, yeah. And we still have to worry about, our, you know, your country and our country. We've got a lot of people that are attacking our fundamentals, the things that make the countries great. Yeah, and exactly. And we really be on guard. I think that there's going to be some more challenges to face together. Your country yeah. as well as our country. Yeah, exactly. You so, look at look at um, wherever the USA has been for for battles. We've always been been there. World War One, two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, first Gulf War, second Gulf War, South South China Sea, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But yeah. we'll, we'll give them our eight eight figure grid, and uh, they can come fucking get us. There you go. <laughs> That's a yeah, limb right. like black, black uh, motivation. <laughs> come get us, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right, awesome. gentlemen. Until next time. Thank I appreciate you it. Thanks, mate. It's an honor, pleasure. Awesome. Happy days. Appreciate Thanks, John. It. Take care. God bless. How about that, Shane? I fucking loved it. <laughs> Fuck it. He was. He was cool. He was. It was awesome. These stories are. Fucking he's got crazy. a lot of stories, mate. He's, he's he's written three books. Yeah, so I think he's got a lot more stories yeah. in him. Um, hopefully down the track we can get him back on for, for some more stories. So yeah, hundred. I, I I definitely think there's definitely a part two, three out of uh, John. Easy, easy. And um, I think we I think we are his first Aussies to chat to. Yeah, maybe I hope so. Uh, which pretty, is fucking cool. How about that story uh, where the NBA, you know, crawling. was moving to the. You know, only move to you know the wind. Through, through the wind, so it would yeah. mask his you know they're sound. So, they're so crafty, aren't they? They're and, fucking and, crafty. And then touches his foot. You know, they both startle each other and <laughs> he just backs away. Was, yeah, and then it's just a roll of it. You know, you know what go through his you know through his mind. You know, do you put a bullet in this guy's head or do you? Yeah, and which he made the right call because, he as he said, go. you know, there was you know possible battalions worth of men. Yeah, you know, looking it. for him. And uh, at the time, what, he was what, 25-ish, roughly? No, nah, 20, 22, 23. He was 23. 
Anyway, he's, he's in his 20s. He was just a kid. Yeah, he was young. He was just he was a young kid. As. And he was saying um, how they flamethrowed the the SOG guy, the, yeah, S- um, the SAS, not the, not the SS, the just, Game Bray. But that goes to show they're just absolute animals over there. And you, you hate to think what happened to our Australian diggers over there. Yeah. And the Australian clearance divers who went over there. Um, and I did, I think, I don't quote, but I think in the 2012 they repatriated the last – Australian soldiers. I from did see Vietnam. that. Yeah, they yeah. flew to Richmond Airport, got a green light parade all the way through to I think Rookwood. Yeah, um, and it's like police escorts, which is it's fucking cool, you know. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, for John to speak about the Harrow's War, um, especially the the Vietnam War, where it was like a new era of savagery, in, in a sense. It was not the NBA where yeah. they were cruel motherfuckers. It, it wouldn't surprise me if you know that, you know, look at ISIS. That's yeah. it's the same shit. That's it. Um, but on the brighter, brighter side of life, we've got bakeries here, here in Australia. And, <laughs> mate, the bakeries here in Australia are awesome. I, I do like the pies. So, mate, the, <laughs> the French Vietnamese bakers here in Australia <laughs> are holding this nation together. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if you want to get in contact with um, Striker, Striker, <laughs> Striker, we'll call him Striker. Um, we'll have a link on our uh, Instagram page. Yeah, we'll um, link him in with his Instagram. Again, he said he's not too good with the old technology. He gets his daughter to do a lot of it. Yeah. But um, if you want to get in contact, you can either hit him up through his Instagram or get onto us and we can uh, direct message him. Yeah. And have a chat with him. Uh, yeah. Um, and get on his, uh, check out his uh, his books. His books. You know? Yeah, they are cool. They're all um, e-books, audio books. Now, if you're a lazy person like, like myself, you could just put it on in the car and just cruise up to work. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, get onto Google um, or sogchronicles.com. That's it. And you'll find his stuff. Yeah. And because, uh, yeah, you'll love it, mate. He's just one of those people that he's a respectful human being, just yeah. humble as hell. And Oh, yeah. You could, you could sit down, you know, I could sit down and just listen to him for hours, you know. Just calls talk. me sir. Yeah. I'll chat. And you could just day. talk a lot of stories to me and I'll just sit there and That's just it. all. So, which is awesome. And, you know, if you want to get onto uh, our social media and uh, find us, you just head to zerolimits. Uh, zerolimits.com, no? It's uh, – actually, there is a zerolimits.com. you got a website now. Zerolimitspodcast.com, yeah. So, head, yep. you can either head to our website as well, which uh, give you links to our previous episodes – and, um, you know, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could as well. Or if you want us to chat to anyone or you want us to track down someone that you, you've, you've yeah. worked with yeah. or you know, he wanted to have a chat with us, you know, um, let us know. Either let me know or Matt know or put on the on, on our page. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess let's see you next time then. Hooroo. Catches. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet and... I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So 
why are you getting your coffee? You're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump on to 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.